Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, Euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Energy Enablers, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy, talking to those working every day on the front line of the energy transition. My name is David Weston, and my guest this week is Artem Abramov, a partner at Reistead Energy, a research and business intelligence company. In this week's conversation, Artem and I discuss carbon offsetting markets. We talk about the issues many of these voluntary schemes face and how to make them an essential tool to the energy transition. I hope you enjoy the show. Artem, thank you so much for joining us on Energy Enablers today. I really appreciate your time. Perhaps could you, just to begin with, could you provide insights to the current state of the carbon offset market? Um, how has it evolved in recent years and what trends do you see in terms of demand, pricing and product types? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, David. Um, so I think, uh, you know, if we talk about uh, carbon offsets and voluntary carbon markets in general, uh, we could probably split the development into two major periods. You know, there was a period of exponential growth in 2017-2021. You know, we went from 50-60 million tons of CO2 equivalent issued every year to the peak of 350 million tons issued in 2021. And since that time, we have actually observed quite substantial slowdown in the markets. So the market slowed down last year and the weakness may be extended into 2023. And there are multiple reasons for that. There are some quality concerns Hmm. on the back of uh, certain articles, investigative reports issued earlier this year. Mm -hmm. So there are concerns about quality. There are concerns about uh, general development and future regulatory environments in some countries. And there is a general economic downturn. Uh, And, you know, many of these uh, projects are driven by governments and nonprofit organizations. So naturally, when, uh, you know, uh, global economy enters into Uh, the downturn or recession, Mm. a little bit less capital flows into the initiatives like that. So what do you see in in maybe in the, uh, where is it at the moment? What sort of perhaps pricing level is it at per, I guess, per ton of carbon? I I guess people are, it's the usual sort of uh, metric that people use for these sort of things. Um, And is there a diversification of sort of project types? Normally you say carbon offsets, people think of maybe tree planting or biodiversity improvements. Is that still the the way forward or are other types emerging? Yeah, so some people kind of say that the pricing of carbon uh, uh, credits collapsed completely in 2023, which is true if you look at some key benchmarks, you know, NGO, for example, is a common price benchmark uh, for nature-based solution credits. And we went from, you know, 20, uh, sorry, 12 to $15 per ton last summer to less than $2 per ton in 2023. Uh, so so that, that's a collapse, uh, you know, where we, we could talk about. Uh, but on the other hand, these markets, they still so immature. And, you know, to some extent, they're just screaming for more regulation. So the volatility, which we're seeing today in the market is maybe normal. And we shouldn't, we should not necessarily say that, uh, you know, uh, we should not necessarily talk about the collapse in the prices. 
it could be a part of the natural vol uh, volatility and in the next few months or quarters, uh, there are certain scenarios when pricing actually recovers uh, all the way back to the levels where it was last summer. In terms of the credit mix, uh, most of the market historically, you know, a fairly large chunk of this market was driven by nature-based solutions. And one of the challenges with nature-based solutions, you know, when, when we say nature-based solutions, we first of all think about reforestation and afforestation mm. initiatives. But in reality, a large portion of nature-based supply, historically it was driven by various forest conservation and protection initiatives. And today, the quality of some of these projects is being challenged by the public, by the investor community, uh, not necessarily because the methodology of major certifiers like Vera was imperfect, but because they were not necessarily able to validate if all project developers really follow their methodology. Hmm. So that, that's one of the challenges, uh, you know, related to the quality of these credits. Of course, there are some other credit types like renewable energy offsets, mm -hmm. various energy efficiency projects, a lot of projects not directly related to CO2, but related to all other greenhouse right. gases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. American Carbon Registry is a certifier which is known, you know, for the focus on such projects. Uh, but generally speaking, the collapse in the pricing of nature-based solutions in 2023 dragged all other credit pricing down as well. So that's that's the latest kind of market developments we have observed this year so far. Hmm. So part of part of the reason the prices have collapsed is uh, you mentioned that the sort of difficulties around credibility and effectiveness of some of these carbon offsetting projects. What factors do need to be considered when evaluating these uh, these projects uh, and how can we make them more credible and more effective programs uh, for carbon offsets? Yeah, so generally speaking, there are four major pillars which we should look at when we talk about uh, the quality of credits. So, uh, you know, we, we talk about additionality, whether the actions which we do, uh, you know, are additional to what uh, would happen naturally without our intervention. Uh, we talk about uh, tangibility of the, of, of the impact. We talk about measurability. It's important to be able to quantify uh, our uh, basically efforts on the actual greenhouse gas emissions or CO2 emissions. And we're talking about the permanence of um, our actions. And uh, if you look, uh, if you broadly look at nature-based solutions, uh, I think it's only tangibility where everyone agrees that it's easy to justify the quality of nature-based solutions. When we talk about additionality, well, uh, if there was a forest in a certain place uh, and we destroyed this forest uh, for some reason, uh, it will regenerate naturally, even without our intervention, Maybe it will take longer time, but sooner and later it will recover. So quantifying uh, the, the, the impact of human intervention is, is a very challenging task. It's not straightforward how to do this. Same applies to measurability. Nature-based solutions, they always get a lot of concerns. It's not easy to really you know, uh, quantify the CO2 impact. There are some methodologies developed by Vera, other certifiers, when we look at you know, the total footprint area, and then we use a certain formula which converts footprint area into net CO2 impact. But of course, it is not as pre precise as actual measurement of CO2. 
which various you know engineered solutions offer and then there is permanence you know dimension and in this dimension i would say nature-based solutions they also get a little bit more uh, conceptual pushback than engineered solutions because there is always a risk of forest fire there, there, there are other uh, you know risks uh, other events basically which are beyond our control which might revert the impact so looking at all these dimensions at the moment uh, i think that the general opinion public opinion shifted quite a bit and uh, the public started challenging the quality of nature-based solutions in many cases we also observed that investors of different companies they also challenge the quality of renewable energy offsets so at the moment there is not so much supply of credits uh, which could be viewed as you know high quality credits universally uh, there are some discussions but from a long-term point of view of course there are various initiatives you know like director capture is one example of engineered solution which could generate high quality of sets and I'm pretty sure that almost everyone will agree that you know uh, they, these offsets they will uh, uh, qualify uh, you know uh, on the quality side across all dimensions. But the costs of direct capture at the moment uh, this is this is the biggest challenge because we are talking about you know four hundred dollars per ton uh, of CO two in the most optimistic scenarios with the current state of technologies. Yeah, interesting. So do you think is there still a role then for nature based solutions in a carbon offsetting program? Uh, and is it a legitimate strategy that businesses can uh, follow uh, in a quest to decarbonize? Obviously, I, I appreciate it's not going to be the whole solution. Companies shouldn't rely on it, but is it some, is it definitely a tool in the box still? Yeah, I think I think it's definitely a tool in the box still. Uh, and uh, I guess uh, you know most people would agree that uh, uh, nature based solutions are just such low hanging fruits. And it's important to extract as much value from these two as we can, theoretically, from, you know, a general climate performance point of view. And there are still so many regions, you know, in Latin America, there are some countries where uh, basically LU, LUCF emissions every year, they're actually positive. So we are still, uh, some of these countries, they're net emitters uh, from uh, forestry. Uh, same applies to some countries in Africa certain regions in, in in Asia as well. So, of course, from a long-term point of view, we should convert all these regions into net sinks, and that will have a certain tangible impact. But the general uh, you know, methodology of how we certify some of these credits, I think it will have to mature, it will have to evolve a little bit and mature. There is a need for some standardization, so all the concerns which we're seeing today in the quality area they are gradually eliminated. Yeah, I think that standardization there is a really interesting point. Is there uh, work happening perhaps or a discussion anywhere where there's like a global standard when it comes to um, measuring these carbon offsets depending on whether they are nature-based solutions or uh, anything else really? Is there a global standard and, and can there be a global standard? Uh, I, I do not necessarily think that we'll ever have like, a, you know, one single universal standard for a certification process but there are obviously some initiatives which could help us you know get closer to this uh, universal standard and uh, you know uh, one uh, one process we should definitely mention is article 6 of the paris agreement 
or specifically, you know, uh, the clause 6.4, which is yet to be fully formalized at the next COP gathering uh, this year. And uh, broadly speaking, Article 6.4 will create like a global carbon market, which will be overseen by the United, uh, United Nations. Right. Uh, and there will be, you know, an opportunity for project developers to you basically register their project uh, projects mm. under the uh, UN's supervisory body, and the project will be will have to be approved by both the country where it is implemented and by this uh, new supervisor by, uh, body. And ultimately, the the, the the idea behind this market is that the credits which will which are certified by supervisory body. Uh, will be available to everyone so uh, which basically means they will be available to governments mm -hmm. they will be available to private uh, individuals and companies right. so it on paper it's a very you know ambitious goal and if it's really implemented and if uh, you know uh, carbon credit capital shifts towards these seemingly certified markets i think uh, it could really help us to you know get closer Mm. Uh, to, to this initiative when we have one common way of certifying all the projects with basically ultimately the UN acting as a body. But at the moment, uh, when we talk to, you know, actual project developers, various corporate bars to the credits, I wouldn't say that everyone uh, is, uh, you know, uh, placing the older bets on this Article 6 process. I think uh, generally speaking, many companies, they still expect that a voluntary carbon markets with independent certifiers mm. from a long-term point of view, that's where most of the growth in this market uh, will be observed. Right. So there are different opinions on this yeah, topic. Absolutely. Yeah. Difficult, difficult topic there for, for people to, to navigate. With the growing demand for carbon offsets, could the market become oversupplied or um, could it undermine emission reductions? And, and how do we maintain then the integrity of the market, especially if this is big global market of, you know, monitored by the uh, UN, everyone's trying to get a piece of that. That's a, a big market to manage. How do we maintain its integrity? Well, at the moment, you could actually say that the market is oversupplied and that's why mm. the, the, the prices collapsed uh, sure. uh, because all, all these concerns, which we talk about, about the quality, they came from the demand side of the equation. Uh, like we still, we are, the supply is not constrained at the moment as such. Uh, from a long-term point of view, I I I, I do believe that uh, this will be like a critical tool uh, if we are serious about long-term climate goals. So the market will have to grow, and it will grow by you know, in 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 our most conservative scenario, mm -hmm. the market will grow by at least a factor of 10. So, you know, wow. today um, we are retiring around 200 million tons uh, of credits every year. By 2035, we are talking about two gigatons of CO2 equivalent per year. Mm -hmm. That's the conservative scenario for this market. Sure. And uh, naturally, you know, it will be pretty much demand-driven uh, market growth. Mm. I think from a long-term view, the price inflation is very likely because right now we just don't feel that supply sides mm. can easily respond to generate such sizable markets. So there will be you know, growing demand for high quality credits, which okay. are more expensive, like yeah. director capture. Sure. Uh, and uh, let's say nature-based solutions alone, they, they simply, they cannot be scaled to the extent which we are talking about. So I think you know, on the horizon of five to 10 years, 
I would say there are more risks that uh, uh, the bottlenecks will come from the supply side rather than the demand side. Okay. But there is there is another side of the equation as well because what we started seeing in the last year or two, some companies they try to accumulate inventories mm. of issued credits. So they buy credits, but they don't retire them immediately. Uh, there are some large oil and gas producers like Total Energies mm. who follow this strategy and they're very transparent uh, on this strategy in their public communication. And essentially what they want to do by 2030, they want to accumulate very large, you know, very sizable inventory of credits. And then depending on how quickly they're able to progress with their scope one emission targets, they will use more or less of these credits to sure. compensate for any potential underperformance. So these type of strategy requires more and more popular, but it requires you to focus on high quality credits. Because if mm. you buy something that is perceived as low quality credits, uh, these credits just become worthless, you know, three, four years uh, down the road, and uh, you won't be able to really convince your investors uh, that you could uh, count them as one-to-one -to, -one to your scope one emissions. Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Yeah, well, that was my next question. How do we stop big oil companies, big you know conglomerates, people like uh, the big companies, the, the Facebooks, the Googles, those sort of things? I'm not going to say they are doing it, but the people with the big uh, the big wallets from hoovering up all of the various uh, carbon kind of credits, um, and then meaning that smaller companies, companies that perhaps are slightly more eco uh, conscious mm. or green aware, green aware of the green the green transition. And they can then can't access uh, these these markets because it's too expensive or because there are no credits for them. Is there is there a, is there a way around that particularly? Can we can we make uh, credits for SMEs and those sort of things? Well, I would say the credits are becoming quite accessible to everyone these days. You know, there there, there is a there are several uh, carbon credits platforms or brokers. Uh, you know, some of them are active only in specific geographies like the US market or Europe. Right, sure. Some of them have a little bit more global focus, but today almost every private individual can buy the credit. Of course, if you are if you have a scale of major oil and gas producer, there are some economies of scale. Mm. Uh, you could work directly with project developer of uh, you know nature-based solution or anything else. And most likely uh, your price per ton uh, will be lower compared mm. to what we as private individuals uh, can get at the moment. Sure, sure. So, but that's, uh, these, uh, you know, uh, this discussion, I think it's the same for any other part of the economy. The larger you are, uh, the, 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 the better access you have to more favorable supplier pricing. You could mm. think a about it a little bit as, you know, a supply chain analogy. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Um, so then is there a role then perhaps governments and regulatory bodies can play in overseeing a carbon offset certification market? Um, and how can they ensure that offset projects align with the climate goals and contribute to a sustainable transition? Uh, well, I think there are two uh, maybe 
separate advices uh, I would like to give to the governments because there are two different countries. You know, uh, some countries they generate a very large uh, volume of credit supply. So, like many countries in Latin America, Africa, Asia, uh, they account for let's say ninety-five percent of existing nature-based solution markets. And in these countries, in last few months, we saw some attempts actually to start regulating the markets quite actively. Uh, you know, the most recent uh, news came from uh, Zimbabwe a uh, couple of months ago. Uh, Zimbabwean government, well, they realized how significant the country is for global nature-based supply. Right. And now they proposed a new law, uh, uh, basically suggesting that 50% of every project revenue should go into government budget, uh, oh. which would result in quite, you know, extreme price inflation, uh, mm. but we haven't seen any actual issues in Zimbabwe because the industry uh, since the start of the year, because uh, the industry got seriously concerned about this regulatory uncertainty. So I think for the governments of, uh, you know, uh, major contributors to the issues, to the credit supply, it is actually very important to maintain, you know, balanced strategy when it comes to, you know, regulation of these markets. Yeah. Uh, I think it's important to avoid any kind of drastic moves if no one else, you know, uh, is doing that. Uh, it's important to kind of maintain dialogue. Mm -hmm. And we all agree that gradually this market will probably become more and more regulated. Uh, well, it, it is screaming for some regulation, at least in the area of uh, better standardization and certification right. process. Right. Uh, but I think these decisions, I think they, they, they have to be driven by some global uh, governing bodies or entities. Uh, if one country tries to, you know, change regulatory environment drastically only uh, for the, uh, uh, and this only uh, will apply to the projects in this country, mm. I think it will just result in immediate loss of interest and the market share for this specific country, like what we saw for Zimbabwe in the last couple of months ago. Uh, in last couple of months. Huh. And then there are many countries uh, which are major emitters. Uh, well, uh, they, they, and they, they're major emitters in uh, multiple dimensions, but I first mm. of all, uh, uh, what I mean basically is that uh, the country, uh, the companies who are very active buyers of carbon credits, they have most of their activity in uh, some of these countries. And of course, we are talking about many OECD countries, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Europe, uh, Western Europe, Northern Europe, United States, Canada, Australia. So for these countries, I think they should pay particular focus on COP, uh, Article 6.4 initiative. Hmm. I think, well, they are already actively pursuing uh, basically the uh, incentivizing this process and completion of this process. But that will be, you know, if you finally formalize global carbon market initiative, I think that will be an opportunity for major emitters to adjust original and disease and ultimately, you know, uh, get some certified credits to get this adjustment in place. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, such a difficult, such a complicated uh, market, but really one that, that still has a role to play in the energy transition there. Um, thank you so much, Artem. That was a really good sort of introduction there to um, the carbon offset market and, and nature-based solutions. Um, how did you get into all of this, this market? What is your background? Uh, before entering uh, Reistead? 
Yeah, so uh, my, my, my original kind of educational background uh, had uh, quite little to do with energy, to be honest. Uh, I, I studied uh, mathematics and financial economics, uh, but uh, uh, I had some exposure uh, to energy, mainly mm. oil and gas, throughout my uh, educational background. Uh, but uh, most of the things I learned about energy, I learned them after joining Reistat. And uh, in my previous role, you know, I have been with the company for 10 years. In my previous role, I was actually in charge of our North American oil and gas research. So my original focus was on mm. the US shale, you know, tight oil, shale mm. gas, etc., or unconventional oil and gas. But gradually I moved into first into sustainability research. Mm. So gas flaring, methane emissions, water management. Uh, so all basically emissions related to upstream oil and gas, uh, that became my core area expertise. And more recently, I have moved into, you know, this new role focusing mm. on clean energy sectors like CCUS, carbon markets, uh, and hydrogen. Mm. So you, you didn't always want to work in the, the clean energy uh, sector? It was gradual uh, mm. development for me, I would say. Uh, the, I, I didn't think about it maybe too much while I was studying, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, after spending you know, some years on uh, traditional oil and gas uh, research, uh, I guess my, my thinking gradually evolved uh, uh, towards all these clean energy sectors. Right. Right. And so what interests you in working in, in this sector? You said you've been with uh, RISAD for 10 years. Obviously, you're still very much enjoying it. What interests you about it? I think it's, uh, you know, first of all, energy is such a data intensive and data centric sector. Uh, I think there are maybe only two, uh, one other sector, one other industry, which is similar to energy, it's uh, finance sure. uh, and some parts of that. But uh, so I was always uh, very data-driven person right uh, so that attracted me initially but then i also of course realized how critical energy mm. is for all aspects of our life so mm. uh you know uh working at rested energy and we, we position ourselves as global energy knowledge house mm. uh it really you know uh, provides you with this feeling that every day you do something that really matters and mm. helps you know, uh, uh, helps basically uh, the people, our customers, but, you know, uh, the, the world in general mm. to become better. Right. I mean, you mentioned how sort of data-driven it is, and, it, and just dropping back a little bit to our, our conversation there on, on um, carbon offsets, do you think the rise of digitalization and artificial intelligence and, and those sort of things are really going to help, one, the energy transition, but also, again, these carbon offset markets? Uh, I think uh, we are definitely seeing the impact of digitalization and, you know, general mm. technological learning curve in all aspects of the industry and life. And um, historically, I would say energy sector was known for being a little bit more technologically advanced mm. than average sector in the industry. So mm. naturally, you know, older developments in artificial intelligence, uh, they're being adopted in energy sector quite early. Right. And even looking at uh, basically our company, REST Energy is an example, the way we analyze data, the way we collect information, process it today, is just so different compared to the way we operated five, 10 years ago. Sure. You know, the significance of various 
remote sensing workloads like satellite data, AS data for our daily operations is just so much higher than right. it was previously. And all these data is just much more accessible today sure. than it yeah. was just five, seven years ago. Right. Yeah, interesting. So what advice would you have then for the next generation that are about to or have just entered the energy industry today? Uh, I think my main advice will probably be that, uh, you know, it's not too late to mm. uh, achieve sustainable energy future. You know, we, 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 we obviously we saw so many pessimistic projections in last two years where mm. some people argue that it's just too late uh, to, you know, do anything to hit 1.5 degree uh, temperature goal. Mm. Uh, we actually argue that it's not you know, uh, there are still some pretty theoretically viable scenarios which can, uh, you know, uh, make 1.5 degree a reality. Uh, there is a continuous, uh, you know, a research and development going into clean energy sectors. And by clean energy, I really mean a wide range of topics, renewable sure. energy, all the technologies like hydrogen and CCS, batteries. Uh, and I think it's very important for new generation to keep basically supporting all these initiatives which were started by current generation so it's right. a, the, the, the most important thing if we are serious about our climate goals is is consistency uh you know it, it's uh, the technology is already there but uh, the speed so their depo deployment is about consistent attitudes and that, that will be very important to maintain yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Artem. Just before we go today, um, I'd love to ask uh, and hear your thoughts on whether the energy transition will succeed. I, I like to think about energy transition as a continuous process. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, we, we, we always observe some energy transition, even uh, like in the last 20 years, there was transition from coal to natural gas in some power sectors globally. But mm. in broad sense, uh, I'm quite positive, you know, the, the, and the, 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 the reason behind that is that uh, the, the, uh, the, the all countries committed to Paris Agreement, uh, you know, the, the, we, we, we have like a global commitment to 1.5 to 2 degrees temperature goal. If we see that there is some underperformance five years down the road, I think regulations will become even tighter. There will be some response from compliance carbon markets. There will be some additional policy support. Uh, but I right. don't think we'll ever get to the point when we kind of give up on, on this goal and uh, step back. Uh, the, uh, this is not happening. And when there is a global commitment, I think it just, uh, you know, uh, it just has to succeed. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. I hadn't really, that makes a lot of sense that the energy sector has always been in transition and always moving and always finding out the next, what the next technology is and, and how to incorporate it. So yeah, fascinating insight. Um, Artem, thank you so much for your time today on Energy Enablers. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My thanks to Artem for joining me on the Energy Enablers. I love that Artem said nature-based solutions were a low-hanging fruit in the decarbonisation agenda. It's just about making their impact quantifiable. I'll be back again soon with another energy enabler. While you're waiting, do check out Foresight's other podcast. I'm joined on the What Matters podcast by my co-host Michaela Holt and Jan Rosener, while Sam Morgan takes the helm over on Policy Dispatch. Be sure to check out the rest of our in-depth journalism over on www.foresightdk.com so you can stay ahead of the curve when discussing the energy transition. Thanks for listening.